From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A continuing resolution Congress and the White House are working on would last beyond the November elections. If it passes, Senate Republicans want the bill to run through December. Democrats in both chambers want the bill to run longer. GovExec reports neither party in Congress will try to connect the CR to a new stimulus bill. Microsoft is the winner of the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Cloud contract again. A statement from the department says the company's proposal, quote, continues to represent the best value to the government. NextGov reports Amazon Web Services says it'll continue to protest the award and calls it politically corrupted. Five Defense Department medical sites across the country will be test locations for a COVID-19 vaccine. Installations in San Diego, Bethesda, Maryland, Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and two in San Antonio will host the tests. The Defense Department says it's looking for essential workers and others at greater risk to participate. More than 50,000 satellites could be in orbit in the next 10 years, and the authority to direct traffic in space has been up in the air for years. The National Academy of Public Administration is taking a close look at who should run things in the air. Sean O'Keefe is a professor at Syracuse University, former administrator of NASA. He's one of the fellows writing about space traffic management at Napa. Sean, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Why has space traffic management been such an issue lately? What's happening in orbit that has this on people's radar screens. Well, thanks, Francis. Uh, nice to be with you as well. And it, the reason it, this is such an important issue now is for the reasons you described at the beginning. We're looking at a much larger volume of space traffic that is likely to be in space over the course of the next decade. And certainly right now, it's already accelerating. There's 500,000 uh, objects in space right now, most of which are dormant but you've got another 3,000 that are active satellites by companies, by different nation states, et cetera, that are operating. Those are gonna accelerate at a rate of about uh, 1,200 to 1,500 a year, uh, given the pace in which the commercial activities have talked about uh, the constellation of satellites that they intend to launch. I, one would forgive you for trying to influence your colleagues that this should be NASA's purvey, uh, Sean. The report, though, the work that your team put out suggests that the Office of Space Commerce should regulate traffic in space. Why is that the right fit, and, and where should that office live? Well, the Office of Space Commerce within the Commerce Department, which right now is part of NOAA, but Secretary Ross has indicated his, his intention to elevate it to a position uh, within the Office of the Secretary of Commerce is ideal because the nature of this role is less about controlling and regulating and more about coordinating and integrating. So it's all the activities of, of NASA, of the Defense Department, of the FAA. The idea is uh, to have the Department of Commerce in their role as the Office of Space Commerce um, interacting with the widening range of industry players that are out there, the nation states that are involved, these are all natural kind of uh, uh, connections that they already have that no other agency would have to go out and create in order to make this coordination process work. This is not a monolithic 
process where you have towers and air traffic controllers and all that. This is more of a coordinate the information you have, make sure it gets to the right folks, connect with the right uh, agencies of other governments, as well as companies around the globe, to have them understand, have a space situation awareness, if you will, of where satellites are and how you avoid those collisions. We've already seen enough instances of this to suggest this is not just a hypothet. Is that office well suited in your view or the view of your colleagues on this, uh, on this team, Sean, to cooperate and integrate well with the fleet of stuff that's going up into orbit from all over the world? As you say, this is not a, a monolithic effort. It's not just the United States that's going to experience this exponential growth, I imagine. Exactly. No, this is a global phenomenon, and we can either take the option to lead that or end up in a position where we've got to accommodate what everybody else is doing in what is really uh, shaping up to be a wild west kind of atmosphere up there. So as a result, this is, this is a chance to really influence the outcome, much as we have seen over the, over the course of years of maritime traffic. You know, there's a set of rules that are in conventions that have been adopted that work very, very well. And the, and the, the circumstances of collision are rare and when they do happen, it's usually because they, you know, the notifications were ignored. But it isn't something where there's an activist kind of role in this, and that's exactly the nature of what commerce could do, the Office of Space Commerce within the DOC, could do to coordinate this information among all the sources of what we have available to us in the federal government, uh, to those global partners, as well as to our own participants, agencies, and companies that are engaged in this activity. Who has to do what to fulfill this vision that you and your team have, Sean? What has to happen in Congress? What has to happen in the executive branch? You mentioned the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, is already uh, emphasizing within his organization the importance of elevating this office to an agency-wide level rather than keeping it within the component of NOAA. Sure. It is... As of right now, the administration has already acted. The space policy directive number three that was already issued a year and a half ago is, is out there. It, it lays out the general parameters of what the intent is to coordinate an, a whole of government solution to this. Uh, the request was made of the Congress to appropriate a minimalist um, uh, amount to get this started. I think it was about $10 million. I mean, this is not chump change, but at the same time, not a colossal investment in um, uh, lots of uh, uh, computer systems and so forth. No, this is primarily just to get the operations set up. And Congress deferred on that until this particular study was conducted. So we're urging Congress to let's get on with the opportunity go ahead and, uh, and put the minimalist amount necessary to get this started, get the coordination going. There's a clear directive that the Department of Commerce should be uh, the primary recognizant agency for this, and let's get it underway because this isn't getting any easier right now. If anything, the risk is getting higher and higher each day. Sean O'Keefe, congratulations to you and your team, and thanks for coming on to talk with me about your work. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Up next, strengthening the military in response to China's military strategy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the path to maximum deterrence. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Defense Department's new annual assessment of the Chinese military says the People's Liberation Army Navy is bigger now than the U.S. Navy. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China Chads Braja says the PLAN is exploring establishing naval bases on several continents around the world. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute, former general counsel of the House Armed Services Committee. Roger, welcome. What's your takeaway when you look at this annual assessment? Well, a couple of things. The first is the trajectory that we've anticipated China taking for some time continues to play out. Um, the size of the Chinese Navy shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's been following this, but it reinforces the point that China seeks to be a world-class military, and with that comes a rapidly changing world that threatens and certainly challenges our interests. And that's what we need to focus on. It's happening quickly. What is your sense of what we're doing or not doing to counter that in the context of the national defense strategy, Roger? Well, you're right to mention the national defense strategy. I think that's the most important first step, which is to basically say China needs to be the focus. They are the near-peer competitor. Um, and everything we do as a Pentagon, as a military, should first and foremost be focused on China. That's the good news. We've been doing that. That came out in 2018. The question is, are we going to modernize fast enough? Are we going to make the key decisions to prioritize investments to address what China is doing? It's a competition. We need to create cost-imposing strategies. And I think the challenge for the military right now is, you look at the military in 2020, it's not radically different, maybe not significantly different, than where we were a couple of years ago. And if that's the case, we're going to have difficulty keeping pace or keeping the edge on China. The Army is into, I guess, the third year of its focus on the big six modernization priorities. The Navy and the Air Force don't seem to have the bumper sticker that the Army does, although they're both undertaking uh, examinations of what they're doing and how they should be doing it five, ten years out. General Brown, the new uh, chief of staff, has a vision just published What's your sense of what the right mix looks like for deterrence of China? That seems to be the biggest focus of the national defense strategy is preventing war in the first place so we don't need to engage with a, a power like China. Yeah, I mean, we need to restore deterrence. Um, we're in the competition. China, of course, is taking aggressive actions uh, in their, you know, near abroad, you know, South China Sea being the most famous example. We have to make sure that our peacetime missions out uh, in Asia are actually a deterrent and not working against our interests in the form of expending readiness, but really not deterring Chinese action. Uh, I think it's a combination of distributing our forces, key investments to counter uh, what China is doing in terms of their uh, you know, missiles that can take out our ships. Uh, so it's a, it's a combination of presence and investments and modernization, perhaps moving away not only, you know, from the manned systems, but for the Air Force case, the unmanned systems. Uh, and then undersea capability continues to be a key focus for investment where, you know, we're just not building at a clip uh, that could give us the advantage that we're seeking. Pretty much everybody in the Pentagon, I think, expects budgets to at least be flat and to maybe go down in the coming years. 
regardless of who becomes president in January of next year. You wrote an opinion piece for Fox News recently where you wrote, budget cuts have rarely, if ever, led to the necessary and important objective of reforming the Pentagon. What's that intersection look like, Roger, as your former committee and counterparts in the Senate start to look at how these things will play out in years to come, not just in this year's NDAAs and as the appropriations committees look at 2021 also? Yeah, I mean, the key is, is that they need predictable spending. You're right that the political environment right now certainly suggests that there won't be an increase in spending, uh, not the kind that Secretary Mattis advocated to execute his national defense strategy, which he said was 3 to 5% growth each year. We're not going to be in that environment. As a result, we're going to have to make uh, some bets here and uh, prioritize. Um, the extent that the Pentagon can enjoy predictable annual funding, they'll be in a better position. But it's a disadvantage, no doubt, to execute the strategy uh, that we were discussing earlier of 2018, the national defense strategy. So um, I think what you're going to see is an attempt to at least keep uh, defense spending at flat, which actually actually means a real cut given, uh, you know, in inflation. Uh, but that that's probably the best case uh, scenario for the military right now when it comes to spending. What does that mean then for the uniformed leaders who are deciding what their needs will be to then take to the civilian leaders and the civilian leaders to take to Congress? And again, not just in 21, what does 22, what does 23, what does 24 look like, Roger? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think they're going to have to make these tough choices, balancing readiness against modernization, right, and then recapitalization of, of existing plat platforms. I mean, inherent in the defense strategies is this tension, right? How quickly can we transform the military for 21st century warfare to prevail in a conflict none of us want? At the same time, how can we go ahead and achieve the deterrence that we discussed earlier, which requires presence today using our capabilities today, making sure the platforms that we have in service are actually working and being put to use. Those three variables is a balance that's very tough to realize in this environment and one that constantly hits the, today, right, the present against what's needed for the future. Roger Zakheim, thanks as always. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me on. Up next, a more inclusive workforce thanks to remote work. Straight ahead on Government Matters, looking at coronavirus-era telework as an opportunity for lasting change. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. General Arnold Bunge, commander of Air Force Materiel Command, will review all the job descriptions in his command and evaluate their compatibilities with telework. Other agencies across government are looking long-term at remote work options after the pandemic. Grace McKinney is head of talent and hiring at Civic Actions. She's former lead of talent operations, the U.S. Digital Service. John O'Din is senior strategist at Civic Actions. He's also a former member of the U.S. Digital Service. Folks, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Grace, I want to start with you. What are some of the benefits to long-term telework for the government that maybe haven't quite manifested themselves yet? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Uh, so I would say the thing I think to remember is that right now, teleworking is not the way that it will be when there isn't a global pandemic. Um, and so a lot of the benefits to teleworking, which is like the flexibility, um, allowing 
agencies to hire uh, more diversely uh, because people don't have to rely on being close to close enough to commute. Um, all of those things I think will uh, shine more when we can all go places again. Um, but so yeah, I think hiring, um, I think, uh, you know, retention in terms of, of that flexibility, as well as uh, the ability for uh, managers to really manage, I think, a little more equitably. Uh, those are all those are all things that I think will uh, will come through uh, the longer that we do this. John, we talked a little bit before we went on the air that there seems to be a lot of momentum around telework and people have become very accepting of it in the government very quickly. What maintains that momentum in your view? What what are the long term benefits that managers should look for and try to capitalize on? There's a few. One of them, like Grace just mentioned there about hiring and retention, where like literally the number of applicants you can get and the quality of those applicants who still meet within all the same, uh, you know, agency specific uh, citizenship and clearance requirements and all that kind of thing. They just happen to live outside of commute range to your physical building. That's one benefit. Uh, it seems small actually or silly right now, but actually it's really, really huge when you actually see it in practice. Uh, the other one is actually you practice, and the way I phrase it is you practice disaster recovery every day. You want to make sure your operation, whatever agency you're running, is not uh, dependent on a single physical building being open. So if your operation of your agency stops working because your staff cannot go into a physical building and suddenly they cannot process that piece of paper that's on a desk, that's that's an operational problem. And so far people have got by with like an occasional snow day or like a small fire in the office kitchen or something like that. But when you have a multi-month closure, like we're dealing with COVID right now, that kind of uncovers long-term contingency plans that a lot of places don't have. Grace, the government sometimes takes a little bit longer than private industry to see trends and to act on those trends. We're starting to see maybe a few companies, some companies in the private sector are saying, don't come back to the office for extended periods of time. On the other hand, we see a report in the Wall Street Journal from Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, yeah. saying, I don't see any positives talking about telework. Not being able to get together in person is a pure negative, and he's anticipating a four-day work week in the office, one day remote. That's not a lot different than what some agencies were doing before the pandemic. And, and I wonder how someone in government reads all these tea leaves when things start to sound different from different places. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think what it comes down to is, especially in tech, we think of government as usually sort of lagging behind private industry. But in a lot of ways, government is, you know, in some ways ahead of private industry. Again, perhaps not in tech development, but um, in a lot of other ways, government has 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 uh, historically been ahead of uh, the private sector. And so I think that in you know, I think it really comes down to evaluating what really is going to work best for an agency, for a team, for a specific position uh, within government. And of course, that changes um, by state and federal. And there are certain jobs that you have to be in person for. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it really I think this is an opportunity for government to kind of set some of the best practices, um, because I do think in so many ways this makes government work easier. You know, um, when I worked uh, at USDS, there were I would have to go to other agencies, and 
you know, I think a great example is if I have, if you're in government and you have to meet with someone at the Pentagon, you don't have to take the train all the way to Virginia and go through uh, security to do so. John, you mentioned some of the benefits that um, organizations can expect to see long term. One of the themes that I hear over and over again is inclusivity, not just the ability, as you alluded to, to draw from a talent pool all over the place, but all types of people and, and to get to people who maybe would have never thought working for the federal government was even an option for them. In a remote environment, what's the best way, do you think, for the government to try to reach those people in the first place to let them know that they should consider themselves to be part of the talent pool now that the government considers them to be part of the talent pool? multi-part question um, and if I may I'd, I'd also add one thing to Grace's thing the flip side of, of Reed Hastings I saw that this morning the other side to it was also Google just announced yesterday that they're not buying offices for their Ireland operation at all they're canceling out of those and Pinterest just canceled their lease that's a brand newly built office and they paid 90 million or 89 million to cancel that lease so this is something where we're all figuring it out as we go along and I think just one of the big things to your question at the beginning, just being open with the fact that we're trying to figure out what works. This is not about having a strong opinion statement. It's about seeing, does this help us? And actually strongly considered, does this help how an agency operates? Um, to your hiring question, there is, um, you know, 2016 was the first year where millennials became the largest segment of the workforce. 2020, sometime this year, is when Gen Z, who come after millennials, will be the second biggest segment of the workforce. They both think that technology like smartphones and pre-streaming video is normal. They both think that a job for life doesn't exist. So they're not going to relocate for a job. They're not expecting to stay there forever. So having a hiring mindset around making it possible for people to be welcomed in and be able to have a good, meaningful career, not a second class downgraded telework type job, but an actual full-on, fully engaged, come make a difference, mission matters job. You just happen to not be in an office. John and Grace, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate the conversation very much. Likewise. Yeah, I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.